0: Welcome to the British History Podcast, my name is Jamie, and this is episode 143, King Penda. no posers. Members, make sure you update your feeds because, at long last, Jim and I have completed our journey and come to the end of the History Channel Vikings review. And I've been trying to find a way to sum up my thoughts on this entire experience. And I think Nietzsche said it best. When you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. Ugh, History Channel. What the hell? Also, I'm starting to sketch out as comprehensive a set of family trees as I can piece together for this period in time. Since it really is confusing keeping track of who's related to who, especially with all these dynastic intermarriages that are going on. So, you should have that to look forward to in the near future. Alright, so where were we? Well, Oswiu had arranged for the murder of his cousin, which is awkward in itself. But the slain king, Oswin, was also related to Aenflade, who was Oswiu's wife. So even if Oswiu wasn't fussed about kinslaying, chances are that dinner still had become suddenly a lot more tense following that underhanded victory. So perhaps to appease Aenflade, or maybe to keep the Deirans happy... Oswiu built a monastery at the location of Oswin's murder at Gilling. By the way, what happened to Oswiu's first wife, Rimmeleth from Regid? She just sort of disappeared, didn't she? Anyway, so we also have King Penda of Mercia in a pretty powerful position by this point. And Northumbria had been broken up into Bernicia and Deira, with Oswiu ruling the former and his nephew ruling the latter. And as for East Anglia... Their king, Anna, was on the run, and he was in a bit of a tough position, having offered sanctuary to the king of Wessex, who had foolishly spurned Penda's sister. And then when King Penda came to have a chat about that whole situation, among other things, King Anna was defeated, and he found himself in exile, though not in Wessex, despite the fact that his former ally, the one who spurned Penda's sister, had returned to his own throne, So that's a bit cheeky, and I wonder why Wessex didn't welcome him in. But yeah, Anna, formerly King Anna, was taking a bit of a sabbatical from the pressures of rule. And northern domination was broken, at least for now. So that's where we're at. And one thing that I find really interesting about this period in history is that while the northern houses clearly had ambitions that stretch beyond their own borders, it doesn't look like Penda had any interest in ruling over all the kingdoms south of the Humber. From what the sources had to say, it doesn't look like he made any attempt to become Bretwalda. And it really is tragic that we don't know more about him from the records. And honestly, the sources that we do have really had a dog in that fight as a result of the fact that they were rather displeased about his paganism. But it is quite interesting that not only was he not expansionist, he really only grabbed the lower Severn Valley and the middle angles, when he could have taken much more, but he also didn't seem to have been the bloodthirsty warrior that we're sometimes told he was. I mean, he was certainly effective on a battlefield, but he wasn't just running around killing everybody for funsies. Think about what we're told about him. He fought against the northern hegemony under Edwin, and then he took lands that were much more connected to Mercia than they were to Wessex or East Anglia. And then he fought what looks like a defensive war against another northern hegemony, this time under Oswald. And then he fought Wessex after his sister was treated rather poorly, but he didn't absorb or dominate Wessex either. And then he fought East Anglia, but he didn't absorb or dominate them either. And more recently, he invaded Bernicia, when King Oswiu looked like he was about to reform Northumbria. But once it was clear that Northumbria wasn't reforming, he went home. He didn't go and take the kingdom. He didn't even replace Oswiu. So Penda, at least to me, looks like he was more concerned with protecting his own kingdom and ensuring that his lands were safe, rather than seeking out some sort of megalomaniacal power grab that some other kings might have sought. I mean, it's hard to say for certain given how sparse the sources are. But at the very least, he's definitely an interesting figure, you know? Anyway, so that's where we're at right now. And Penda really did seem to be only concerned with things that directly affected or threatened Mercia. And we see that insular behavior in Penda come out once more in 652, which is one year after Oswin's fall. And that's when King Chenwal of Wessex, who was back from his exile in East Anglia, started to fight with his neighbors. Now, if Penda was more of a tyrant, I find it hard to believe that he would have allowed Chenwal to go and take the throne back, but also I could imagine that he might have used this opportunity to check Chenwal's power, or even seize his lands, while Chenwal was distracted in battle against his neighbors. But instead, Penda didn't do anything. But King Chenwal did. See, the thing is that because he was ruling again, he needed to be doing what kings were expected to do in this era, namely... He needed to bring his people, or more importantly his war bands, wealth and status. And so he did that by attacking the Britons to the west. And I suppose that's the obvious choice, because going north was madness. Mercia was to the north. And while King Penda wasn't involved right now, if Chenwal started a fight with him, Penda would definitely finish it. And Wessex had already learned about Mercian power back when they lost the lower Severn Valley to Mercia. And then they learned it again when Penda marched upon Chenwal himself and he ended up getting chucked out of his own kingdom for, you know, personal problems. So there was probably no need to further poke the bear, especially when there was an easier target to the west, the Britons of Somerset. I mean, over the last several decades, Wessex have been making solid headway with expanding their western border. They've been consistently winning and expanding, so why not continue that tradition? And so, we have the Battle of Bradford-on-Avon. And that's where the West Saxons under Chenwall were victorious, and they pushed their borders well into Somerset and as far as the River Parrot. The River Parrot, by the way, is an awesome name. And in addition to all of this, they also seized Glastonbury Abbey. And some scholars have argued that that was probably King Chenwal's objective all along. Don't forget that he was a newly converted Christian, and he might have wanted to take that holy site from those dirty heathens who had been Christian since... ah hell, they've been Christian for way longer than he had. But you know, whatever, details. So that's what was happening in the West. But things were also flaring up in the East. And that's because in 653, King Anna of East Anglia returned from exile. As you know, he got his teeth kicked in earlier when he tried to stop Penda and his Mercian warbands from looting a monastery, and he ended up getting exiled, probably to the Megan Seta. Well, he was back. And as for Penda and what he thought of this... I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. So yeah, King Penda was none too pleased about this. When he said, get out and don't come back, apparently he meant it. And so, upon word of Anna's return, Penda and his warbands invaded East Anglia, either in 653 or 654, dating as spotty as usual. And at Bull Camp Suffolk, their warbands met. This battle went the way that all battles involving Penda went. It went really well for Penda. And as for East Anglia? Well, we're told that large numbers of their warriors were killed, including King Anna and his son, German. And then something really interesting happened. Penda made his son, Peda, the ruler of the Middle Angles. Now, we were given the impression that the Middle Angles were already under mercy and control following the defeat of Anna's predecessors, King Sigebert and King Egric of East Anglia. So that makes you wonder why Penda was suddenly handing over the kingdom to Peda. Did the Middle Angles rebel and side with Anna? Is that what caused this rumble? And if so, was there a sudden opening on the throne following that battle? Or was the region leaderless for a while and then was carved out so that Peda could have a territory of his own? It's hard to say. But Bede tells us that Peda was a, quote, excellent youth and most worthy of the name and office of a king, end quote. So however the opportunity came about, maybe Peda was being rewarded for solid leadership, you know, in battle or something. But of course, what I find interesting about this is that we're seeing King Penda handing out rule to his own dynasty. He's starting to act much more like a dynastically focused king now. And that's going to continue. And yeah, in the interim, King Anna and his son were killed. And King Raidwald's nephew, Aethelhera, took the throne of East Anglia. And so Penda's tally rose to two exiled kings, five dead kings, and one dead 8 And 653 wasn't over yet. See, the thing is that now that Peda was a ruler, he needed a bride. He had a relatively small kingdom, but he was the son of one of the most powerful kings in Britain. So he needed to make sure he married the right girl. And this was before Match.com, so finding a partner wasn't easy, and his available options were from only within a certain group, namely the ruling class. And frankly, marrying within that group made perfect sense since it could enhance his power. And one of the most powerful kings in Britain at this point was Oswiu, and he had an available daughter. And if he could marry her, he could also do his duty by his family. By promoting stability between the two rival kingdoms. Oh, romance. And so he went to the court of King Oswiu of Bernicia, and he sought the hand of his daughter, fled. Now, Bede doesn't tell us what King Oswiu's initial reaction was. For example, we don't know if he said, hang on a minute, only a couple years ago your asshole father was outside our gates throwing an impromptu bonfire. But the whole thing must have been a bit awkward. But maybe not as awkward as it could have been, since there was some degree of family relations between Oswiu and Peda. That's because at some point prior to this meeting, Peda's sister, Chinneberg, married Alfrith, the son of Oswiu and Rimmeleth of Regid. Yep, Alfrith, Oswiu's son, married the daughter of the man who killed his own uncle, Oswald. And apparently both Alfrith and Oswiu were totally okay with this. Do you see what I mean about this dynastic thing? Despite the conflict between their families and the blood that has been spilled, they still made time to arrange marriages. It's kind of strange. Now, we aren't given dates for this wedding. We're only told that it happened prior to Peta's proposal. So it's possible that it could have been prior to barbecue night at Bamber. And so all the goodwill of that wedding had vanished by that point. And if that's the case, it could account for King Oswiu's rather frigid demeanor and the fact that he took a stance on this proposal that was stronger than any Christian had done regarding Anglo-Saxon marriages to this point. King Oswiu said he would allow the marriage, but only if Peta converted. Now, Edwin and Aethelbert were also given conditions before they could marry their Christian princesses. But they were only required to consider converting. Peda was told that conversion would be a precondition. And actually, not only that. You see, it wasn't just Peta that needed to be baptized and converted. His entire kingdom would have to as well. Not just him. The whole damn place. The whole region. And it makes you wonder if Oswiu made that demand in an effort to reject the proposal without, you know, directly rejecting it. Because it was pretty extreme. It would be like saying, sure, you can marry my daughter, but you need to bring me a golden fleece from this magical bird. You know, it's one of those things where it just seems like it's a little bit too extreme and it wasn't a serious offer. But it seems like Peta took it seriously. And he also stuck around and became friends with his brother-in-law, Alfrith. And we're told that it was Alfrith's influence that had the biggest impact upon Peta, and after, quote, he heard the preaching of the truth, the promise of the heavenly kingdom, and the hope of resurrection and future immortality, he declared he would willingly become a Christian, even though he should not obtain the maiden, end quote. So a couple things here. First, it sounds like Peta was getting the same sense that I was getting, that Oswia wasn't quite serious and didn't really intend to marry his daughter to him. And second, that's a really strong statement. He was basically saying that he was converting to convert. Converting just for marriage could make for a rather lukewarm believer. But King Peta was saying that he believed and he didn't care whether or not it resulted in marriage. And so Bede continues. Accordingly, he was baptized by Bishop Finan with all his nobles and thanes and their servants that came with him at a noted township belonging to the king called At-The-Wall. And having received four priests, who, by reason of their learning and good life, were deemed proper to instruct and baptize his nation, he returned home with much joy. These priests were Ked and Adda, and Betty and Diuma, the last of whom was by a nation of Scot, the others English. The aforesaid priests arriving in the province with the prince preached the word and were heard willingly. And many, as well of the nobility as the common sort, renouncing the abominations of idolatry, were daily washed in the fountain of the faith. End quote. So the Middle Angles had become Christian, and Celtic and Northumbrian forms of Christianity were becoming rather influential in the region. And so King Oswiu consented, and King Peda married Alfled, daughter of King Oswiu, at sometime around this point. And speaking of conversions, that same year, things in the kingdom of the East Saxons were changing as well. All those years ago, when the tides were turning against Christianity, and King Athelbert of Kent died, and the pagan King Raidwald was reigning as Bretwalda, the East Saxons cast off Christianity. And actually, their Christian king mysteriously died, and his three pagan sons took over. And they also went and ousted all the missionaries and clergy from their kingdom, So this wasn't a minor thing, but times were changing, and now, after summarily ejecting the religion from their borders without any hesitation, now, decades later, it was back with a vengeance. The thing is, that while the real power in Britain was King Penda, it was King Oswiu of Bernicia who was throwing his weight around. And interestingly, Penda generally allowed it, only checking him from time to time. But the fact of the matter is that while Oswiu might not have reformed Northumbria, he was still a major mover and shaker on the island. And Bede tells us that Oswiu would often meet with King Sigibert II of the East Saxons, and that they were friends, and that he would raise arguments against the king of Essex's pagan gods, and in favor of his own Christian god. Arguments that seem rather reminiscent of Paulinus and the arguments that he made to Edwin. And much like Edwin, B. tells us that Sigebert first wanted to have the advice and consent of his friends and counselors before he would convert. And then, after he decided to convert in 653, all of his inner circle followed suit. And they were all baptized at a town near Hadrian's Wall by the Irish Bishop Finan of Lindisfarne. And thus, Sigebert got a new nickname, King Sigebert the Good which was significantly better than William's first nickname, I suppose. But consider what we're being told here. First, we're seeing that the Irish influence upon Northern Christianity is deepening, with the Bishop of Lindisfarne being drawn from that region. And not only is Iona influencing Lindisfarne, but it's also influencing the new East Saxon converts. And second, and more importantly... Sigibert and his entourage were baptized near Hadrian's wall. They were actually baptized at the Wall, the same place where Peda was baptized. And that's Bernician territory. The king of Essex and his counselors came to Oswiu, not the other way around. And this was the second king in this year alone to have come to his kingdom and be baptized at this location, and also they are largely converted at Oswiu's insistence. That man was certainly wielding some influence south of the Humber. Get your minds out of the gutter. And it wasn't just in how they went about their conversion that showed how powerful King Oswiu was. After the baptism, Sigibert and friends returned home, and they requested some missionaries be sent to Essex to aid in their conversion. And so Bede tells us that King Oswiu summoned Ked, one of the priests working amongst the Middle Angles, and sent him along with some help to Essex. So, if it wasn't already obvious, following the conversion of Peda, King Oswiu wielded a fair amount of power over the Middle Angles. And so Ked and a missionary were dispatched from Bernicia to Essex, probably under the auspices of Lindisfarne. And Ked did such a great job with conversion that he soon was summoned back to Lindisfarne, and Bishop Finnan made Ked the Bishop of the East Saxons. Thereafter, he and his missionaries returned to the south and built quite a few churches in the area, including Bradwell-on-the-Sea and Tilbury. So Oswiu's influence, as well as the influence of Iona, was certainly being felt as far south as Essex, which was right on the border of Kent. And that was probably making Canterbury a little bit nervous. After all, it was the Bishop of Lindisfarne that was making the new Bishop of the East Saxons, not the Archbishop of Canterbury. They must have felt like they were losing ground. And I wonder if they were more concerned about Oswiu and the spread of Celtic forms of Christianity than they were about King Penda. I mean, consider the difference in behaviors between the two powerhouses of Britain. Penda had a pretty significant tally of killing and exiling kings, but he didn't seem like he got involved in the politics of other kingdoms unless it was necessary, or there was a slice of land they wanted. Or someone treated his sister in a way he didn't like. Whereas King Oswiu was following a long tradition of northern kings by involving himself in the political and religious lives of his southern neighbors. So despite the death toll, Penda might have seemed a little less troubling. Especially when you consider what was happening in Penda's family and how he reacted to it. You see, it wasn't just King Peda who converted, but also Penda's two daughters Chinabur, and Chinniswith, And Penda seemed totally okay with that. In fact, Bede tells us that King Penda even allowed Christians to preach in Mercia. And it wasn't Christians that he had a problem with, but rather, he hated those who failed to obey the gods in whom they believed. Basically, he hated hypocrites and posers who proclaimed one thing, but behaved another way entirely. The picture I get of Penda is a man of deep beliefs, but tolerant of the beliefs of others. And someone who was motivated by politics rather than religion when it came to how he ruled his kingdom. Also, more often than not, he seemed to be a man who didn't start fights, but he would finish them. So I kind of like Penda. And the relationship between him and Oswiu is rather strange, isn't it? In many ways, you couldn't ask for two more different kings. And yet their families were tied together in both directions, with each of them marrying one of their sons to one of the other's daughters. Now, I know some families have rather tense relationships between their in-laws, but I don't think any of them could hold a candle to what was happening in 7th century Britain. And it was only going to get worse. Oh, and to round out this episode, on September 30th, 653, Archbishop Honorius of Canterbury died. Because... You know, not enough things happened this year, apparently. Seriously, did we forget to sacrifice a bull or something? This year was crazy. All right, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you should head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and check out what we have to offer over there. There's forums, there's links to the Facebook community, to Tumblr, to Twitter, to all the social media stuff we have going on. And there's also some resources there for you to take advantage of. So head on over there and have a poke around. All right. Thanks for listening.